Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, mother, medievalist, super fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. Yes, I did have a secret elvish alter ego as a middle schooler. And yes, I did sing the soundtrack accompanying my little brother's homemade remake of Lord of the Rings. It was very shrill with a lot of high notes. This deep part of my past and present is just so pleased to welcome Caitlin Fasista, creator of the online community Tea with Tolkien, to the show today. Caitlin Fasista is wife, mother to four babies at home and two in heaven and a hobbit at heart. She lives with her family in the Midwest. Hobbies include thinking about Tolkien, obviously, making friends on Twitter, and spending time with our Lord in her parish adoration chapel. She's the author of Two Middle Earth and Back Again and 30 Days in the Shire and contributor to Catholic Hipster, The Next Level, how some awesomely obscure stuff helps us to live our faith with passion. She's also written for the Grotto Network and The Catholic Woman. Thank you, Caitlin, so much for coming on the show. I'm really pleased to have a Tolkien fan here of your caliber and nerdy Tolkien joke. I almost said your quality, <laughs> uh, but then I decided I did not want to be the Denethor in this situation. So um, <laughs> I ask everyone who comes on the show two questions. The first, which um, I might be able to guess your answer, we'll see, is what is your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? Hmm, I would have to say C.S. Lewis. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Inklings rivalry. Right. No, I mean, I think I guess the obvious answer to that would be Tolkien and um, The Lord of the Rings. So, any, uh, um, why would that win out over other things? Oh, I over, mean, say, Tol- Silmarillion, which I know you do a lot about. We're going to talk think, about that in a sec. I don't know if the Silmarillion is 50 years old. It's pretty close. Oh. So that is why I didn't say <laughs> I Funny. know it came out in 1977. So we are coming up on the Oh my gosh. Okay. But it's not, it doesn't really quite fit. That's really funny because um, I actually looked up, knowing I was about to ask you this question, I looked up the year that The Lord of the Rings were published just so that if you did answer and it was not 50 years old, I could be like, well, it's, (laughs) but it's definitely 50 years old. Right. 1954, right? I think so. 54, 55, 56, maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly, but I know The Hobbit was in uh, 1937. Uh Uh-huh. So that's definitely... Yeah, that one would count no matter what. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fun. Okay, so then, secondly, which literary character do you most identify with and why? Hmm, out of anything ever written? Anything. It could be, like, something published two weeks ago. It could have been something published or written on manuscripts uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago? So I feel like this, I feel like when I was in high school, I really identified with Holden Caulfield. Okay. (laughs) Um, From Catcher in the Rye. Um, Just because he's just kind of like, I don't know, just the way he is. He's kind of a guy you don't really like, but you also do like him. Um, And the way that he's very angsty and trying to figure out the world, I feel like that was definitely me when I was younger. Um, I guess now that I'm like an adult married with multiple children, I guess I couldn't say that anymore. (laughs) Um, I'm probably more of like a Rosie Cotton from The Lord of the Rings, realistically. Nice. Down for a a fun time at a fun time dancing at the bar, but also making a lovely home at right. Samwise Gamgee. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. So let's get into talking about Tolkien and um, your work as the creator of this online community, Tea with Tolkien, which is really fun. Um, one of the reasons that I as a medievalist, love Tolkien so much is that he was a medievalist, of course, back in the Mm -hmm. day at Oxford. Um, And I was digging into some of his medieval influences, um, which, of course, he did Old English literature mostly. And so it's like the riddles found in The Hobbit are um, really closely related to riddles of the Exeter book or um, poems like Beowulf, which when I read Beowulf 
in college, I was like, it's the Rohirrim. Oh my gosh. Um, Mm. But what was standing out to me while I was thinking about this time with you was Tolkien's love of fairy tales specifically. And um, I read a quote of his in an essay on Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that I'm mulling over and that I'd love to hear your thoughts about. And he writes, it's one of the properties of fairy story thus to enlarge the scene and the actors, or rather it is one of the properties that are distilled by literary alchemy when old deep-rooted stories are rehandled by a real poet with an imagination of his own. Ooh, and, I love that. Yeah. Isn't that so uh, evocative? So yeah. I, I just want to think about that with you for a second. What What is he seeing about fairy stories that has this sort of enlarging of of the universe in a sense? Well, I feel like kind of one of Tolkien's main themes when he does speak about literature and fairy stories is the way that um, a good fairy story kind of points us to realities that are true in the primary world. So you've got like the real world and then you've got the secondary world, which is like the created fairy story world. And a good fairy story is going to, it's not really like setting out to teach you a lesson. It's not meant to be like a a fable, Um, but it's meant to kind of draw you in and help you understand like this is how the real world works as seen through the secondary world. So I think that's like a really big theme for Tolkien. Um, And the idea of like enlarging the scene and the actors, it kind of makes everything feel larger than life. And um, I don't know, just like more exciting, more thrilling. And it, again, to that, it just kind of brings you back into your own world. Like it makes your own experience of life richer is Mm. what I I guess I would say. So it's almost like... um these are really um, cheesy parallels, but I'm, I'm thinking through this, trying to, to think through so, some good ways to illustrate this, which it's almost like you, if you took a picture of something and then as an artist, you added color to it and you added, you like um, expanded, like zoomed in on certain details of the picture and, and brought out certain colors more vividly that you maybe wouldn't have noticed in the original picture. So even though it's not the like actual flower in front of you, this artistic representation is drawing you to bigger aspects of the flower than maybe you would have noticed in the first place. Do you think it's something like that? Yeah, I think that's really good. And that kind of reminded me of like, after I was reading the Lord of the Rings, um, and I felt very immersed in it. I would be like out on a walk and see a tree and it would like cause me to pause because before that, before I got really into Tolkien, you would just see a tree and okay, it's a nice tree. But once you get really into it and all the, and everything to do with fairy tales and fairy stories, like I feel like it causes you to appreciate it more, mm-hmm. like to really pause and be like, wow, that is a really cool tree. Like, look at all of the details. And I wonder how long this tree has been here and what like the tree has seen in its life. Like um, there's just so much to the world that I think fairy stories can help us appreciate and understand a little bit more. Mm. I'm thinking of it. I I like your example of the tree because it it draws you into things in a more grounded sense, which is really funny because it's fairy stories and you'd think instead it would kind of throw you out in the outer space, but instead it kind of grounds you into your, your present in a particular way into noticing. And, and I, I'm also thinking of it in terms of, um, it helps us to consider things that are really hard to see in real life sometimes. So say courage or justice, these abstract concepts that sometimes in the, in the fuzziness of our lives with each other in community, it can be really hard to discern And because fairy stories are sort of more um, enlarged, clear-cut examples of things, they can help us kind of dimly discern our way back into these ideas and and the value of them in our ordinary lives. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Totally. I think so. That's, I, I'm really interested in this idea of, of fairy stories and specifically that he loves taking things that are already rooted. So he's taking these medieval influences 
and building stories out of them instead of starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely, that's true. Have you read his, um, his essay on fairy stories? I have, yes. I feel like that's a really, really good place to start for people who are interested in kind of understanding how Tolkien looked at fairy stories and what a fairy story was to him because he spends a lot of time in that essay actually <laughs> trying to define it because it's not it's not something so easily defined as, oh, it's a story to do with fairies. Like, right. Because Lord of the Rings doesn't have any fairies. So according right. to that definition, it wouldn't be a fairy story. <laughs> right. Right. So it's uh, it's it's very his his just his definition of it is very particular yet also very vast um and he'll go through and be like see this story nope that's not a fairy story <laughs> like okay so okay speaking of i've always heard how much he and lewis disliked allegory mm-hmm. um which some people relate to fairy stories you know but i've never really understood why, especially as medievalists, because so much medieval literature is allegorical. And I, do you have any thoughts about why they really didn't like allegory? Did it just feel too like, well, X equals Y? And then it, it, was it that or something else? I think so. To me, the more I read Tolkien, I think a lot of the things that he's said are like when he's giving an interview and he says, no, 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 that's not allegory. Like his, his interview answers are a little bit different than what you might find in his personal letters. Okay. Um, he was a lot more guarded in his interviews and stuff like that. Um, especially when you had people like, well, obviously the ring is, uh, you know, nuclear weapons or nuclear warfare (laughs) and, and Sauron is Hitler. And he's like, no, no, no. He does. He just doesn't want people to like take his work and be like, "This, see, this equals that." Um, and I feel like that's kind of like a manip- manipulation of his creative works and and everything he put into it. It would be kind of insulting to be like, "Well, obviously, you know, like this is that, and and the orcs are whatever, and like you know, it's it's so much more than that." So his stories can't really be boiled down to such a one to one comparison. Yeah. And I think the phrase that he preferred was applicability mm-hmm. rather than like a formal allegory. So um, there are a lot of things that are very similar and um, you kind of find like glimpses of other things in his stories or echoes or like a mirror, but it's just never really like exactly the same. Uh-huh. Well, it's it's interesting because I'm like, I I feel like there are some allegories that are fairly flexible, but maybe he is fighting about allegory in this really strict kind of public uh, present day sense of allegory. Well, present day, 50 years ago, but you know, Um, (laughs) of, of, yeah, Sauron is Hitler. The ring is nuclear warfare, whatever. Um, But, but I see so much about, like on a personal level, myself speaking as a Tolkien fan, I, I see so much value in like a, a broader allegory of Lord of the Rings, especially of like, say, Frodo and Sam or Frodo's journey with the ring as an allegory for taking for um, how to be, bearing really hard things or something mm-hmm. like that. But maybe he wouldn't classify that as allegory I don't know yeah I don't think you would call that an allegory I think that would be again like falling under the category of applicability where like there the story exists on its own and it doesn't equal anything else but there are things that you can learn from the story and apply to your own lives like like yeah like Frodo how he's so willing to sacrifice everything that he loves in order to save the Shire um, he has to lose the Shire so that's a really good example of something that you can carry with yourself if you're like going off to war or if you have to lose something in order to save it, you know? Um, And there's so many different things with all of the characters um, that I feel like pretty much anyone can pull something out of the story or see themselves in a character um, and feel encouraged or strengthened as they're reading. So, okay. There are, a lot of cool things about what you're doing with the tea with Tolkien online community. Um, and one of them is your Silmarillion reading guide. And you really encourage people to read the Silmarillion, which mm-hmm. is 
the least read of like Tolkien's major works, right? Right. What? So give us a little spiel on what do you think the power is in reading the Silmarillion versus those other things? And what does the Silmarillion have to offer us that's different than what Lord of the Rings offer us or the Hobbit? Um, what do you think of that? Okay, so it's actually crazy because let's see. So the Hobbit came out in the 30s. The Lord of the Rings came out in the 50s. And Tolkien spent the, the rest of his life writing the Silmarillion. And it never was published until after his death. So he didn't even get to live to see like the completion of his work, which is really sad to me. But if you think about it, there were a ton of people who fell in love with the Lord of the Rings and Middle-earth um, and never, like, like this is before the Silmarillion was even available. So mm-hmm. obviously you can enjoy those and read them and you can understand the stories pretty well without the Silmarillion. Um, but once you get the Silmarillion, it's, it's almost like you're driving at night on a dark country road and you have your regular headlights on, but then you turn on your brights and then suddenly you can see everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it illuminates your your reading of Tolkien, there are so many references, especially in the Lord of the Rings, um, especially when it comes to the elves that you can get by with reading, but they don't totally make sense. Or there's a lot of context that you don't really even understand until you get to the Silmarillion um, because you have the creation of the whole world and basically all of its history up until the point of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. So it's, it's not a prequel, but it's just like, it's everything else. It's, mm-hmm. it's, and there are so many amazing stories in it. Um, there's, there's huge, massive scale. Like we have the creation story and then all the way down to like, you know, Baron and Luthien. It's the story of, of two people in love and it's like a, an epic romance. So then there's also great battles. There's pretty much something for anyone in the Silmarillion. Um, and it's just such an incredible work. And it was Tolkien's I feel like it was like his life's work. Like hmm. the Lord of the Rings and and the Hobbit are obviously a part of that, but this is like the the completement of it. And he actually wanted the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion to be published together, um, but that didn't really work out. <laughs> Twenty years later, right? <laughs> um, okay. What about if? Um, okay, so something that I um, I've read the Silmarillion. I've read it twice, I think, and. But I am not turned off. I think that's too strong of a word. But I don't love the, like, high mythic tone mm-hmm. that Tolkien uses in the Silmarillion. It's how do very, you feel very about different. It? Yeah, yeah. How do you feel about it? It's hard to get past it. I think one of the main things that I suggest for people is that they listen to the audiobook. because Ooh, that's a good idea. So one note about the audiobook though is a, a lot of the words are pronounced incorrectly. <laughs> but if you just check the pronunciation guide in the back of the book and you kind of have to retrain yourself. Um, but other than that, it's an incredible audiobook. And, what do you why uh, do you think listening to it is less uh distracting than reading it? I don't know. For me, I I mean I just feel like <laughs> The way that it comes to life when you're hearing it, it feels like a story that was meant to be listened to Hmm. rather than really read off of a page, Um, especially because it has that like mythic quality. So you can kind of imagine like, I don't know, a thousand years ago, people sitting around, you know, sitting around talking to each other and telling these stories, um, especially the creation story at the beginning. Um, And it just, it feels very... I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's enchanting and it's, it's captivating. And um, it's, I just love listening to it actually a lot more than just trying to read it. That's a great tip. I might have to take you up on that and listen to it while I walk with my youngest in her yeah. store. Um, so another thing that is really cool that you do are um, Hobbit parties. Could you <laughs> tell people a little bit about your Hobbit parties and sure. maybe how people could throw a Hobbit party for themselves? Yeah. So this year is going to be our family's 11th Hobbit party. Um, it really started when me and my husband were first married. 
we were in college and it was honestly, it was just a movie marathon and I made snacks and they were kind of themed and then I decorated a little bit. But as we've grown up and we started having kids, I've started adding like more games to it. And now my kids are older, like my oldest is nine. So she's really into party games and she gets really into it as well. Like she'll do face painting um, and different crafts with the other kids. She wants to lead activities. So it's really grown as our family has grown. And so, so my first suggestion to someone is like, I've been doing this for like 11 years. So my parties are very big. Um, I spend like a couple months beforehand planning everything. Um, And it also lines up with my work. So it's, like I'm able to devote a lot of time to it because then I can do a post about it later. Um, But it just depends on like what your, what your season of life is. So if you, if you want to just have a movie marathon, that's really cool. If you want to make different kinds of food, that's, that's awesome. It just like your Hobbit party is what you make it. So I don't want people to be like thinking that it needs to be some kind of Pinterest worthy thing. It's, it's usually a lot more fun if it isn't. Um, so tell me, like, is there a special date you throw it on? Like, is yeah, there, yeah. Do you have uh, give us a some of your inspired food options? These are the things I feel so uh, helpless about when I am trying to plan a party of any kind. Not a Hobbit oh, yeah. party, but right. of any kind is um, like what what kinds of themed things do you do? So um, September twenty second is usually. Uh, the date that we do it because that is the date of Frodo and Bilbo's birthday. They have the same birthday, um, different years, obviously. And so that's usually day we do the, the Hobbit party. And then March 25th is also a big day for Tolkien fans. That's Tolkien reading day, which is the day that the ring was destroyed. So those are the best two dates to throw a Hobbit party, but ours is usually in September. And I usually do a, there's, there's a couple ways you can go. You can either do second breakfast, which is obviously breakfast foods. <laughs> you see what, like, just look up what an English breakfast is if you don't live in England and uh, kind of just go from there. Or we usually will do, like, hobbit food, like dinner food, which is more just, like, comfort food, pub kind of food. Like, I'll make a shepherd's pie usually with some stew. Um, if there's any food mentioned in the books, that's always good. Um, do you like, do like lembas? Yeah, you, like, I always make lembas. <laughs> yeah, I have my own recipe for lembas. It's up on my blog if anyone wants to look at it. Oh, that's it awesome. It's so good and it's really specific. So there's obviously no official recipe for lembas. Um, but for mine, I use a lot of honey, um, almonds, la- and lavender, and then like a little bit of citrus too. So it has a really distinct smell to it. Ooh, that sounds awesome and very yeah. elfish. Yeah, I, I know. I, I thought the lavender made it kind of more... Like ethereal. Yeah, yeah. And honey seems so much more ethereal than just like sugar does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's sugar in it too, but... Um, of course. But. Yeah, there is a lot of butter in it too. I, mm. had, I have my recipe up on the vlog and I have had several people ask me if it was a typo because there's so much butter in it. <laughs> but it also makes sounds a really awesome. big batch, so... It goes pretty far. Um, But yeah, so I make that dough and my whole house smells like it. And my kids come home from school and they're obsessed with Lumbus. So I have to like hide the rest of it from them. But they can smell the the smell of it when they walk in. And um, so we do Lumbus. And I usually have some wrapped up in like I'll make leaf wrappings out of fabric (laughs) um, to go for when our friends are leaving the party. I'll also do... Party favor, Lembus. Yeah. That's awesome. We do, yeah, we do the Lembus as a party favor. And I've also gotten really into candle making. So sometimes I'll make candles. Um, I feel like you really just have to ask yourself, like, what would a hobbit do? And then you just try <laughs> to do that. We also do a lot of games. Like um, we have one game called What's in My Pocket, where I have, um, it's like an advent calendar where there's all those little pockets. Mm-hmm. And you hide different things in it, and obvi- and the one ring is in one of the pockets. So this is more for the kids, so they'll just be, uh, you know, digging through the pockets trying to find it. Um, we also do archery, which has been a big hit for the little kids. Um, it always stresses out their parents, but we love. That's amazing. 
Um, we also, oh yeah, this is the most fun. We usually do a pinata that's shaped like a dragon. And then I have a replica of one of the swords from the Lord of the Rings. And we pull out the sword at the end and usually we'll let some of the older kids, as long as their parents are okay with it. <laughs> and then last year we made a Nazgul king out of straw. It was kind of like a scarecrow, but it was all black wow. and it had a balloon for the head. And we got out my sword and we let the oldest girl <laughs> stab it in the face. <laughs> like Eowyn. So the party's just getting more and more every detailed. year. Every year just gets <laughs> crazier. Like I'm actually a little bit worried this year because I've invited so many people. And I'm like, if you guys all show up, my neighbors are gonna be pretty mad. But I can just <laughs> invite my neighbors too. So true, true. Just include everyone. Yeah. Um, what I really love about the idea of the Hobbit party too is that. It so fits the spirit of Lord of the Rings and of The Hobbit in general, mm-hmm. where you have these um, high fantasy adventures, you have dragons, you have um, the overthrowing of kingdoms, crazy stories. And then at the heart of it, you have quiet, cozy homes, nights out with friends, this spirit of hospitality that um, is also really related to um, a lot of his medieval sources medieval mm-hmm. people had really strong ideas about like guests and hosting people and hospitality. It was an essential part of being human as they saw it. And that Tolkien has that balance of both this wild adventure um, and hardship in the wilderness. And then this centrality and beauty of homes and parties and friends. And yeah, well, sometimes and we I focus th- on the adventure side, like more yeah. on the other side. I feel like you really have to be grounded and rooted in a life worth living. Like, Mm. obviously, every life is worth living. But in the sense of, like, the lives that the hobbits live are so full of goodness. It's, like, bursting at the seams with beauty and goodness and joy. And so that's why they're able to withstand the power of the ring for so much longer than say like the men of Minas Tirith because they've grown up in the shadow of Mordor. Mm. So it, it almost feels like a something similar to like a childhood, like living in the Shire is like a, the ideal childhood. And then when you grow up, as you enter into the world, you're so steeped with beauty and truth and um, you have such a firm foundation that you're able to withstand everything that you're going to encounter as an adult. So that's kind of how I feel about it. And and the way that um, the rangers are protecting the Shire, because the Shire can't exist on its own. Mm-hmm. It would become destroyed or or infiltrated or, you know, run through with, with whatever evils is coming around. And so you have to have someone there protecting that goodness too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, so you're a devout Catholic, and Catholicism shapes so much of Tolkien's universe. Um, where do you see that most strongly emerging in his work, and, and what has spiritually shaped you while you've read Tolkien? I feel like the biggest thing with Tolkien is that well, there are a few themes that I think are really important and are really shaped by his Catholicism. I think the, the presence of grief as it's mixed with joy and love mm-hmm. throughout the whole story um, really comes from his Catholicism and the way that he's grown he, because he lost both of his parents at a young age and the way that he's had to navigate life. And, and even in world war one, he wrote almost all of his friends were dead by the time he was like 20. Um, just so much suffering that he's gone through. And I feel like um the only way to get through that is to have some kind of beauty and truth to cling to and some hope. And so in having the hope of um, the hope that comes with Christ, that is something that allows you to stand firm against like everything that's thrown your way. So I think that's one of the big ones. Um, But I think death and mortality is also a huge theme within all of Tolkien's works. The way that um, he calls death a gift, the gift Mm -hmm. given to men because elves aren't given that gift. Like they, they live, their fate is basically tied to the fate of the world. So they can die in battle, but they won't die of old age. And um, the way that like 
we realize that everyone dies and, but there's a way to have like a happy death or a good death. That's, that's another one of the big themes I think. Um, and then the way that there's just always, it's like, I'm trying to think of how to say this. So Gandalf says it pretty well when he's talking to Frodo in the fellowship of the rings where he's like, um, there's something else at work and it's not Sauron. Like there are other forces at work that are working towards the good. Um, and even though you see, you can really only see the forces working for evil, like there's this kind of unspoken God figure that we know if you read the Silmarillion, you know, that's Arrow Iluvatar, mm-hmm. but um, you could also call it Providence. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find that that's a really fascinating point about this emphasis on mortality and immortality. That is actually something that is um, striking when you think about how so much of the narrative of the Lord of the Rings is shaped around um, people's responses to death and the passing away of things Mm -hmm. um, and how that works for both good and ill in their lives. And yeah, I, I think that's a striking idea. Um, Okay, to switch gears a little bit and get a little less serious, <laughs> you just did something really cool with Amazon, which is I did. crazy. Um, you went to London and got a sneak peek into their new Rings of Power series. Right, um, yes. And I know you can't share that much with us, but um, could you just give us a little tidbit? And secondly, what would make or break this series for you? Like not related to your trip, but what what are you looking for in a rings of power series? This is what I've thought about this a lot because I have very strong opinions about the Hobbit movies are bad. The Lord Mm -hmm. of the Rings movies are good. Not as good as the books, but very (laughs) good. As far as an adaptation goes, I have big feelings about all a variety of adaptations. Um, But what would make rings of power like good for you? (laughs) <laughs> okay first, okay first answer about the amazon thing <laughs> okay so it's crazy to even be able to say like i went with this amazon thing because for the longest time i couldn't even tell anyone like my husband knew obviously because he had to know where i was going but like i could not tell anyone that i was going to be you know working with amazon for this uh rings of power show so it's like really exciting to be able to to say that i did that because it just felt like it just felt like a really cool opportunity. And I feel really grateful that they uh, saw my website or my social media or whatever and and thought that they would like my opinion. So I thought that was really, really nice. It, it was just a really, um, I don't know, it, felt, it just felt good. Um, but the trip itself was really, really cool. Um, I am a lot more hyped up for the show than I was before because when the That's teaser came sign. out, I did not like the teaser. Mm-hmm. I was actually um, on an airplane when it came out and I had paid like $10 to have Wi-Fi so I could watch <laughs> it because I knew it was coming out during the Super Bowl. And uh, we had just been visiting family and we were flying home because my family doesn't watch sports. So I didn't even realize it was Super Bowl Sunday when I booked <laughs> our plane tickets. Um, so I was on the airplane. They were my probably baby cheaper was crying. too, being yeah, on Super yeah, Bowl probably. Sunday. <laughs> I know. So like, I'm on the airplane, my baby's like crying in my lap. I'm trying to watch the trailer. And, and when it first came on, I didn't even recognize it because you see that Hobbit little girl and she has all these twigs in her hair. So I thought she was like a fawn. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, is this for the Narnia show that Netflix is making? Wait, Um, Netflix is doing a Narnia show? Yeah, I think so. Oh I my think gosh. I read an article about that. I'm almost positive that they're like, oh, well, Amazon's doing Lord of the Rings. Well, <laughs> well I'm not silly. Exactly. Like, you know, tit for tat, like got to raise the right? stake always. But like, okay, sorry. Back to what you were saying. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've read about that. I would have to double check. I know they at least have the rights to it or something. Whoa. Okay. Um, but so I didn't even recognize it as Middle Earth when I saw the teaser. And then it's just like, bam, 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 flashes of, of random scenes. And I didn't like the voiceover. So after that, I was like, eh, maybe I won't even watch this show. Like, I just was not into it at all. Um, so I totally agree, by the way. Right. The teaser was really unappealing because of that quick cutting. I was like, that just doesn't feel true to the spirit of Lord right. of the Rings, which is always this like, 
it's not that there's not moments of intense action, but they're all grounded within this sort of slow unfolding. So it just felt very artificial. And I know that's the way that teasers are, I guess. Um, I'm not like a film critic, so I guess I, I don't know that much about teasers, but sure, it but seems I feel like consistent. you could make it yeah. more like the spirit of the material or whatever. Right. So um, and I feel like I was pretty vocal about that online, like, um, and pretty much everyone I talked to didn't really like it that much. Um, so the fact that they still invited me to come to this, I thought was was really neat you could tell that they really did want to hear from people um because we got to so um we got to see some footage and then we got to have a Q&A session with the showrunners and a couple different like top directors of whatever department and um they really did seem genuinely interested in hearing what we thought um and hearing our questions and trying to answer them as best as they could so and they seemed really really passionate about it and I mean it's possible that they're just really trained and they're good at doing PR. Um, but I, I feel like the show writers, at least, it just really shined through that they love Tolkien. Mm. So I feel very confident that their goal is to do a good job. I don't know if in the end it will end up being executed the right way. Sure. Um, I'm still nervous. I think I'll be nervous until it comes out. Yeah. Um, but it just made me feel a lot a lot more confident and a lot more excited because we got to see a lot more context for um, what we had seen before. That's good. And it's good. It is good to hear that they're actual fans and not just like, oh, because I think what so many people are afraid of, including myself, is, oh, well, Game of Thrones was such a massive hit. Mm -hmm. Like, this is our Game of Thrones, which really is like, no, yeah. it should not be anyone's Game that. of Thrones. Yeah, and I liked Game of Thrones. Like, it's not my favorite, but I, I totally watched it and everything. Mm-hmm. But that's it's actually a false parallel to compare them because yeah. the, like, metaphysics behind them are so different from each other. I feel like people are like, oh, Tolkien is English. George R. R. Martin is American. Therefore, you know, Game of Thrones is the American uh, Lord of the Rings, which is horrible no um and I (laughs) like so much of Game of Thrones was so disgusting that it was was hard to watch it like I would be invested in the plot and I would want to see what happens but it was just so hard to watch for me yeah oh yeah I did a lot of eyes shut yeah a lot of skipping tell me what's happening I don't want to see it myself like I would have to skip an entire scene and then I would be confused after the scene was over. So it was just a really frustrating experience for a show. And then the ending was so annoying. Just oh, that last season yeah. was a huge disappointment. It just huge. like went off the rails. And so for people to be like, oh yeah, this is the next Game of Thrones, like it scares everyone. Like nobody wants that. Um, I don't know anyone who liked the end of Game of Thrones. Um, so I definitely don't think it's going in that direction. I don't think I'll be able to watch the show with my kids just because they're littler. And I yeah. think it's going to be scary mm-hmm. um, because the second age is really dark. And that kind of brings me to right. your second question. Um, I really, really want the show to be dark. I want mm. to see, I want to see like kind of the process of, of the ring race because we know Sauron gave, um, nine rings to the mortal men mm-hmm. and three of those gave were given to Numenorean um, men of like high ranking yes and so like I want to see that I want to see their descent into like captivity with Sauron I want to see like elves being taken under Sauron's like dominion and kind of being broken and I don't want to see it in like a depressing and like gruesome way but I just feel like um there are so many elements to the second age that are just so dark and I just kind of want to see it play out. But I, I also, the thing about Tolkien is um, that there's always hope no matter what. And so I want that to be something that's consistent through the show. Like there's, there's always hope, even if things are dark right then. I would, I totally agree. I would love to see a show that almost felt not dark in the same way of Game of Thrones dark, where sometimes there just is no hope. 
in Game right, of Thrones. Right, like Game of Thrones feels different, like metaphysically. It feels so nihilistic. It's nihilistic. It's very much like Nietzschean, like just power, you know, power yeah. struggle. And it's and like nothing is worth anything. And, no. And we all no. die in the end. So what's the point? Anything good will be destroyed, right? Yeah. So that's what I don't want. But what I would like to see as with the darkness is is something that is almost more like a Shakespearean tragedy in tone, mm-hmm. where it's this, it's all so tragic because it was so beautiful. You know, yeah, like that's really good. that vibe, which I think is very Tolkien inflected. Like, yeah, the destruction of Numenor is so tragic because it was mm-hmm. so beautiful, right? Um, right. And so I would, if, I don't know how that will work, but other things have been made that capture that well. So I hope that, you know, not in terms of Tolkien, because the Lord of the Rings trilogy is a totally different story than that, Mm -hmm. right? But that's all in the background. But that's what I would really like to see. And related to that, I love your thought about hope. I think that's really important. And I would love it if they did a good job with Galadriel. That's yeah, what I'm really nervous yeah. about because I love Galadriel. Yeah. I always have since I was really young. I like wanted to be her. I knew I wasn't, but I wanted to be her. That's and, one thing that does uh, make me really nervous. Yeah. Because especially in his letters, Tolkien like explicitly ref- refers to um, Galadriel as being kind of inspired by uh, our Blessed Mother. And yeah. so... That's like you do not want to screw that up. Like it, no. it's it feels almost sacred the character of Galadriel. So for them to be working very freely with her character does make me very nervous. But we also are going to see such a different Galadriel because this is she's thousands of years younger. Yes, so she she's not this wise, um, you know, she's not like the wise experienced a queen of Lothlorien, you know, that yes. we see in the, in the Lord of the Rings, she's, she's got to get to that point. So how yes. is she going to get to that point? Um, I just so hope they don't have her like going on flings with whoever, whatever oh, other elves I before know. she marries Celeborn. Like that would be annoying. I don't want to see well, any like wouldn't Galadriel character dating. either. Like I would love to see, just like you said, like a, the character arc that matches her, mm-hmm. like, okay, wisdom is hard one and often brutally one. Right. So right. the darkness makes sense there I I could totally see that as okay she has she's tempered by fire you know and the Silmarillion makes that clear that she has made mistakes mm-hmm. um but yeah I would I would really hate it to see like like <laughs> right. doomed love triangle Galadriel like that would just feel right. like a diminishing of her character exactly. and not in a good way <laughs> I just hope that they treat the really important characters with the respect that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Kid gloves. I also, yeah. I also think the, so the things that if they ruin it, they'll be dead to me. Um, <laughs> I I do worry a lot about how they're going to depict the religion of Numenor because yes. a lot of the times when you get these Hollywood people, they're usually not religious. And so like, I'm not saying that you have to be religious to understand the religion right. of Numenor, but right. a lot of the times people don't understand even the concept of religion. And so I worry that they're going to be very confused and disoriented by it and not even know how to approach it. Um, because it's very clear that they were supposed to worship Eru and then they very clearly worship Melkor. Right. Um, and so that balance I'm very nervous about. Well, and that's related to like the George R. R. Martin parallel, where yeah. it's like clearly um he had a you know, and he did some really interesting portrayals of religion. It's not that um he was like overly simplistic, but again, the way he was thinking about it was not in terms of like ultimate truth, the way that Tolkien thinks about it. Mm-hmm. It was in terms of this like cultural relativism, which is really interesting, but a different situation, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, like I don't want them to be like showing the Numenorians kind of, you know, not really into it. At the right, or that it's like, all just a, a farce or something. Yeah, like obviously like some of them. Is real, yes, and so is Eru. Like yes. they're extremely yeah. real in the universe, and these these religions are not man made. They're not made to manipulate anyone. Like the way that Tolkien wrote them is they are real, yeah. and so I just worry about um, the show depicting them as like 
some kind of power move by someone else in charge. So I don't know. That's going to, I don't think, I don't think we'll get to that for a while unless they're going to be like speeding things up. Uh, I really don't know. But that's one of the big things for me that is kind of make or break. Because if you don't understand the religion of Numenor and the way that it's so tied to their fate, then you just don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, Okay. So we're going to do a little round of like hot takes right now. I'm just going to throw things out at you. And, um, but first, before I do that, very important, several people in the comments when I posted that I was interviewing insisted that we talk about Tom Bombadil. Okay. (laughs) And because for some reason, he always seems to come up with people as a point of dislike. I don't know, which is funny to me because I don't have a problem with Tom Bombadil at all. Um, Right. But uh, I would like to know, what are your thoughts on Tom Bombadil? Why is he such a polarizing figure when he is just in this little corner of the story? And what's the deal? Well, I mean, I think he's a, he's a merry fellow. (laughs) Can I tell you something? Because he's a merry fellow um, and because his name has the same amount of syllables as Santa Claus Bombadil. I, whenever I think of him, I have, here comes Santa Claus coming down Santa Claus Lane <laughs> in my head, but it's Bombadil instead. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> so here comes Bombadil. Here comes Bombadil right down oh Bombadil Lane. Anyways, that's that so funny. not related at all. But but when you said that, it almost reminded you of in Narnia when Father Christmas shows up, and you're <laughs> like, "What? Father Christmas exists in this universe?" Like it's kind of similar because Tom Bombadil shows up, rescues the hobbits multiple times. They spend the night at his house, and then he's just not in the rest of the story. Yep. But he's so unaffected by the ring that they're like, at the Council of Elrond, they're like, what if we gave the ring to Tom Bombadil? And then I forget who says it, but they're like, no, he doesn't care. He'd probably just lose it. (laughs) And uh, so he's just such a mysterious guy. I get why people don't like him, because when you're trying to read the book and you're like, I got to get to the story. You know, he almost feels like another step in your way. Mm -hmm. And his poetry, his songs can kind of be a little bit goofy. Like, he's definitely a goofy guy. Even the way he dresses um, and the way he acts is just very silly. Um, But I just think he's, he's definitely important. But it's like, why is he important? Nobody knows. Like, <laughs> who is he? He is master. That's all we know. Um, and I know there's been books written about him, and people have all kinds of debates. Like, is he Eru Lubitar himself? Is he one of the Maiar? Um, there's just so much about him that's mysterious. And it, it's fun because I like that Tolkien left that question unanswered. Yeah. For almost every time you have a question, he has an answer. But with Tom Bombadil, he's just like, nope. <laughs> I really like that. I think that's a great point because, yeah, he's sort of like people love to compare him and um, C.S. Lewis and how like Tolkien has this like massive backstory and several new languages and several new religions and like and Lewis is like, this is Narnia and this is yeah. just what happens here. And, and I have there's zero. Christmas here. We have Santa Claus. <laughs> right, right. Like, Which what? I like, I actually like both. I like, mm-hmm. I really enjoy um, both styles, but I do like that um, Bombadil, I think Bombadil is, uh, he, yeah, he fills that space of mystery where you're like, there are things in Middle Earth that are unaffected by the ring. And that actually is really powerful when you start to think about it, that the ring is not, it's it is the most powerful thing in terms of that it's about to destroy everything but there are things outside of its grasp and that's actually a really important kind of anchor to it's it's, not all powerful yes yeah Yeah. right Mm -hmm. yeah and I'm sure that brings a lot of hope to the story uh, as well it almost reminds me of when Sam is looking up and he sees the star and Mm -hmm. he's like this this isn't gonna last forever and this can't cover everything good Tom Bombadil is another Another example of that, like he's Mm -hmm. completely unaffected. Sauron could never have dominion over him. Right. And it's not even like a figure like 
Gandalf or Galadriel who have this immense power, but who are pulled and swayed by the ring, mm-hmm. but they ultimately reject it, which is great. But for Bombadil, it's not even like it's it's like just he like, doesn't even oh, want it. Yeah, yeah. He's like what's this silly silly thing? Like what a trinket, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, here you can have it back. I don't yeah. want it. <laughs> who cares? Um, yeah, I like that. Okay, ready for the round of hot takes? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, best member of the fellowship. Sam, obviously. <laughs> Would you have always agreed with that? My well, sister I mean, was obsessed with Legolas, like obsessed. I feel like people have crushes on the actors and they uh, read too far into it. So then they think Legolas is the, like, oh, Legolas is the hero of the story. Like, I'm sorry you have a crush on him, but he's not. <laughs> <laughs> Sam over Frodo. Yeah, Sam couldn't have made it. Or Frodo couldn't have made it like no. halfway without Sam. No, Sam was um, definitely the heart and the brawn and almost everything. Right. Like, f- obviously, Frodo had a really important part to play, and Sam's role wasn't the same, but they really, really needed each other. And yeah. they wouldn't have gotten as far as they did without each other. All right. Which uh, people group in middle earth would you belong to and why i would probably just be a human (laughs) (laughs) i don't feel like i i everyone always idealizes hobbit life but the way that they're always in each other's business is (laughs) would actually really annoy me so i don't think i could handle that i like the way that men are a little more you know they they have their own house this Mm -hmm. is where they live this is where they hang out this is what they do, which, like which uh, group would you be? I would love to live in Athelion after the War of Ooh, the Ring. Good answer. Um, I always wished that I was an elf. Like, I really, really was into them. But I feel like I am more like a hobbit. Namely, yeah. like a Bilbo-style hobbit that is, like, ensconced in his study with books and tea and, like, hiding from visitors. right. Well, like, I'm not even, I'm about to turn 30, and I'm already, like, so tired. Can you imagine being, like, 2,000 years old? I could not do it. I would just be, like, so over it. Like, no wonder Elrond is always just, like, so grumpy. I couldn't do it. All right. Rank the movie adaptations, not counting The Hobbit, because I thought they were terrible. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, Out of 10? Like in order, which oh, okay. is best to worst. Um, of I would the say that the fellowship is the best. Absolutely. Um, oh my gosh, this is really hard. I would say Return of the King is last. So the two towers would be in the middle. Okay, so in the order. In yeah, the yeah. Hold. I think so. Any thoughts why? Okay, I didn't endings. know if you wanted to go really fast <laughs> no. to the hot takes. Yeah, I, I've got. Well, I think um, the fact that they didn't show the scouring of the Shire, like I get why they Ooh. wouldn't want to include that in mm-hmm. the movie because it would make it so long. But I mean, it's kind of a, a big deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they, they did leave leave a lot out, I guess. Okay. So that's related to the next one, which is worst part of the movie adaptations, which is the worst. So, okay, I have two. Um, Faramir, they absolutely. Totally him. Oh my gosh, what a disaster! Which right. I really like the movies. Like I would probably rank them higher than you. I saw your ranking on Twitter. Oh. I think I would rank them higher. But Faramir, oh my gosh, like seriously, the best man in the series. Right. Like I like him better than Aragorn. Yeah, for sure. But disaster in the films. Absolutely. And and then the second thing is I really didn't like how they added the tension between Frodo and Sam where to the point where Frodo was like go home Sam. Yes. Like li- realistically what's Sam going to do? Totally. Go, like how could he go home? Like there's no possible way. So that was silly and the fact that like they made Frodo going through Shelob's web alone where in the book they went together um, that really bugged me because yes. it just felt like so unnecessary. Again, like I understand what he was trying. He was trying to show, oh, the ring is messing with Frodo. Yes. But, um, but they could have done that other ways. Like we aren't stupid. You know, that yeah. felt like, so 
one of my big pet peeves in movies is when movies treat their audience like they're stupid. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, unless we make the tension really, really obvious, right. they won't get it. You know, and that's how that scene felt was that it was like totally extraneous to the arc and just not not that like you right. <laughs> and then it it screwed up the level of their friendship because yeah. then now they have a big rift. Whereas in the books, they were pretty solid the whole time. Yeah. Um, and and Sam was so faithful. So I didn't like that. Nope. I totally agree. Great choices. All right. Best part of the books. Oh, best part of the books. The best part of the books is when Frodo and Sam awaken in Athelion after the ring has been destroyed and Sam sees Gandalf and he's like, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. And then he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And he's just like so overwhelmed with joy that then he starts crying. Um, And that is so, I don't know, it like makes me cry every time I read it. And um, it's so beautiful. Like obviously everything sad isn't going to come untrue in the story, but like as a Christian, like the hope of the resurrection and everything like that, it, it kind of, it's like everything that's, every tear will be wiped away and all mm-hmm. things will be made new. So it, it just always reminds me of that. Okay. Worst part of the books. The worst part of the books is when Theoden dies without knowing that Eowyn is the one who uh, defended him. Hmm. Because in the movies, you get that. And that I was thought a, that, that was a very well done part of the mm-hmm. movie, by the way. Yeah, that's one of those things where I am very, I'm really happy that Peter Jackson added that. I think it was a really good move because it it was so beautiful and it was really like soothing to your heart after so much misery and pain. And so the fact that Tolkien didn't give us that in the books was just like, ah, it, just devastating. Good answer. I had forgotten that about the books, but you're so right. And that was a really good, a really smart Peter Jackson move. It was Mm -hmm. a redemptive moment and redemptive for Eowyn too. Absolutely. An important part of her journey. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. The final question I have for you is, do you have a secret wish for something Tolkien had written? And then after that, because we're running out of time, if you'd like to share where people can find you online, if they're interested in learning more, finding out more. Hmm. I don't know. I feel like I, I, I don't even know what I wish for because Tolkien has already given me so much. Um, I think if I could just like hear him talk, like just sit with him and just listen mm. to him talk about anything. Cause he just had so much knowledge and understanding of the way that the world worked. And that's why he was able to create such a consistent world mm-hmm. is because he understood our world. Mm-hmm. And uh, so just to hear him talk about anything, I think would be amazing. Um, and then, so I guess that's not a super good answer. No, that's, I don't, that's I don't, an I don't answer. Know. Okay. That's a good answer. Because you're saying you feel satisfied with the world he's built. Because he gave us so much. Like did. how could one man in their lifetime, I know it, the Silmarillion came out after his lifetime, but he wrote so much. It's wild. Um, I just can't, it's, it's hard to comprehend. Like he was just given such a gift with his mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so where everyone can find me, uh, my website is teawithtolkien.com and I'm on any, pretty much every social media at teawithtolkien and, uh, we have our Silmarillion book club coming up this summer. So if anyone would like to join it, it's free. And it is a 10-week book club. So we are going to be reading it pretty fast. Ooh. But I wanted it to be done before the Rings of Power premiered in September. That way um, people have a more a more contextualized understanding of what the show is going to be about. Because awesome. they don't have the rights to the Silmarillion for the show but they're going to be drawing from the second age, which is depicted in the sec- in the Silmarillion. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, listeners, maybe it's time for a visit to the Silmarillion um, aided by the Summer Book Club. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much, Caitlin, for coming on. I had such a fun time just 
uh, diving back into Middle Earth, realizing that it is definitely time for me to do a reread, uh, I, which I do probably every two years or so. And nice. yes, the time has come. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you, you for so joining. Much. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. If you'd like to um, learn more about what I'm up to, what I've been reading and writing lately, you can subscribe to my free monthly Substack newsletter, Medievalish with Grace Hammond at gracehammond.substack.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter at gracehammondphd or on Instagram at oldbookswithgrace. I would love to chat with anyone about Lord of the Rings or any other nerdy literary topic with you on any of those platforms. Thanks again for listening today.